Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. In this second of a two-part series, we're looking at floods and the increasing risk from climate change. We're going to learn from experts how at-risk communities can become more financially resilient in the face of worsening floods. This series is being sponsored by the Warden Risk Center at the University of Pennsylvania with generous support from the Delaware Valley Regional Planning Commission through the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's Coastal Zone Management Program. Returning to the podcast is Dr. Carolyn Kuski of the Wharton Risk Center, who gives us some context to what this two-part series is all about. Then joining me is Joe Rossi, the flood specialist for Rogers and Gray Insurance. Rob Moore, the director of the Water and Climate Team at NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Josh Lippert, floodplain manager for the city of Philadelphia. And Samantha Medlock, senior counsel for the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis in the U.S. Congress. You'll learn a ton from this all-star lineup of flooding experts. We'll learn how climate change is quickly driving changes in policies around flood risk and management. We'll generally focus on the mid-Atlantic region, and once again, we'll hear a lot from the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Although many of these discussions are relevant to communities across the country grappling with increased flood risk. And don't forget to check out episode one in the series. There's a link in the show notes. I hope you enjoy the conclusion to this special series. Now let's join Dr. Kuski to get us started. Hey, adapters. Joining me is Dr. Carolyn Kuski. Carolyn is the Executive Director at the Warden Risk Management and Decisions Processes Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome back to the podcast again. Hi, great. Thanks for having me. I've been enjoying these conversations. So you're back for the second episode in this two-part series that we're doing. Just in case someone didn't listen to the first episode, can you just give a little bit of background why we're doing this two-episode series? Yeah, we're looking at the challenges that households can face in the financial recovery from flood events, how floods impact them, and then what some solutions are to help people recover better from them. So our first episode really looked at some of the challenges and how costly flood events can be. And hopefully today we'll talk a little bit more about some solutions. This is a project that was generously supported by the Delaware Valley Regional Planning Commission through the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's Coastal Zone Management Program. So we're really thankful for their support. I'm very excited. We are going to be talking about some solutions. So who do I get to interview? Yeah, today we're going to hear from several folks that have been thinking about how the public and the private sector can help get people back on their feet after a flood. We're going to hear from two national policy experts. We're going to hear from Samantha Medlock. She's the senior counsel for the U.S. House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. And she actually has a long history in thinking about flood management and how to address the increasing risks from climate change that we see with floods and help improve our flood policy. We are going to hear from Rob Moore from the National Resources Defense Council, and he will talk to us about some broader policy responses to help people manage this increasing flood risk. We are also going to hear about how cities are responding. We're going to talk with Josh Lippert. He's the floodplain manager for the city of Philadelphia. We're going to get a private sector perspective with Joe Rossi. He's a flood insurance expert with his own brokerage firm who's been looking at some innovative insurance options to help with the recovery from floods. Okay, that seems like an all-star lineup of people that I'll be talking to. But before we jump into those conversations, you have been thinking about solutions to this problem too. Yeah, we've been doing some work at the center thinking about how to make disaster insurance, flood insurance more accessible to the people 
who need it the most because flood insurance plays a really pivotal role, as we talked about in the last episode, in terms of people's recovery. But sometimes the people who need that help the most can't even afford the insurance. So one approach that has been examined by a range of scholars and practitioners and FEMA itself is a pure public sector response, to have means-tested assistance, to have the federal government decide to provide financial assistance with the cost of flood insurance. That's been put forward as a policy solution for years now, and we haven't seen Congress act on it yet. So without that forthcoming, we've been looking at some private sector models and public-private partnerships. Sometimes these are globally referred to as inclusive insurance. That's a term that just means insurance programs that help make it available to those who were previously locked out of the insurance market. And low-income folks would certainly be in that category. Could you give us an example of one of these models? Yeah, we've been looking at something called microinsurance. This is an approach that's been used actually throughout the developing world globally. There are policies that have a lower coverage limit, but also lower premiums. So they're easier for people to afford. These types of insurance products are generally what's called parametric, which means that they provide funding for people based on some objective measure of the hazard itself. So with our standard homeowner's insurance, if you know you get damage, if a tree falls on your house, the loss adjuster comes and looks at it and says, you know, okay, this is how much it's going to cost to fix it. Here's how much money you get from your insurance. But that's really expensive in terms of, you know, the transaction cost. You have, they have to pay to have this guy come, you know, just to process your claim. So you can't have that as the model if what you're trying to do is keep your costs as low as possible, right? And so parametric policies pay just on some observable measure, like the flood gauge hits this level, the storm surge is this high, the wind speed exceeds this level. And then you just automatically get the payment right into your bank account. We've been looking at how you could have these with sort of, you know, lower dollar payouts, you know, maybe you get $10,000, but you get it right away and you can use it for whatever you need in terms of your recovery. So this has been used in the developing world, but has it ever been used in the United States? It hasn't yet with one sort of very recent exception, and that is in Puerto Rico. Just last summer, Puerto Rico passed regulations enabling microinsurance on the island, disaster policies. Now, microinsurance needs a little bit of its own regulatory framework because it's not typically distributed or sold maybe in the same ways. And because you want to make sure that the costs are kept low and that it's affordable because you're targeting sort of lower income consumers. And I think the first policies have been written in Puerto Rico through a company called Raincoat, and there might be some other firms as well. So we'll be interested to sort of watch that development and see how these policies can be helpful to people going forward. Okay, so that's just one model. Are there any other potential models out there? Well, we've been looking at one other one, which is to, you know, sometimes when you're trying to reach groups that really can't afford it, maybe another model is to have an NGO or a government agency or something purchase disaster insurance on behalf of those folks that are at risk. We worked with MMC Guy Carpenter on a report that looked at this, not necessarily always in in the context of low income, but something we called community-based catastrophe insurance. And now we're working with the Mayor's Office of Climate Resiliency and the Center for New York City Neighborhoods on a model where an NGO could assist with the recovery of lower income households by themselves purchasing a parametric flood product, and then using those proceeds to provide emergency grants to lower income households. You know, I think the bottom line, Doug, is there's some new and innovative models that are sort of just now being explored and just now being piloted. And I think it's an exciting time to see what 
you know, which of these make an impact, how we can help scale them and really improve people's recovery. And I think some of the other guests you're going to be talking to in this episode might have their own ideas of what types of solutions are out there for us to start adopting. Okay, Carolyn, I don't want to take any more time. We're going to jump in with these experts and they're going to share their thoughts on all these issues. But thanks for coming on and kickstarting this second episode in the series. That's great. Thanks so much. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Joining me is Joe Flood Rossi. Joe is the president and CEO of the Joe Flood Insurance Brokerage, and he's also the chair and executive director and founder of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into risk and insurance and flooding, can you give us a little bit of background on each of those organizations? Sure. So I've been in the industry now for a little over 12 years. Started with the Mass Coast Coalition and some local involvement in activism, actually where I got my my start. And kind of over the years has evolved into my professional life, which as you can tell is why I'm called Joe Flood. (laughs) So, you know, everything I do professionally and kind of as a hobby revolves around flooding, flood hazards, flood insurance. Awesome. I love the nickname. Okay. So you have spent a lot of time thinking about innovative approaches to expanding the number of people who get flood insurance to meet their needs. Can you give us some examples of that? Sure. So, you know, one of the the reasons I kind of branched off with my own wholesale insurance brokerage was to start to work and create some of these creative flood insurance products. And there's a couple we have in the pipeline But the two that are kind of really evolving right now, and actually some are in the marketplace, one of them is a program that will allow those that either have had losses or potentially could experience losses, which in theory could be everyone or or no one. But we, of course, know those that are at higher risk than others. And it's a program that would allow for individuals to do certain things to either their structure before a storm or to kind of defend against a flood during a storm that would actually allow them to have a reduced flood insurance premium. So, you know, there's a lot there. It's The program is really kind of in its beta phase right now, but it's actually going pretty well with the ones that we have in, in the test, kind of the incubator. And then the other one that's really in its infancy that we're scoping and, and looking at is a way for multifamily buildings to be protected by having the unit owners also included in the coverage to give some type of what we call loss of use or you know money to go live somewhere else after a flood and contents coverage kind of built into the policy for the entire multifamily building or complex. So these are just two of several areas that we're looking to innovate in. Both of those and some others are currently, like I said, in, in kind of the beta or, or thought or, or incubator stage. All right. And that's very interesting in that, you know, when I think of buying insurance, it's like, all right, I need to go buy insurance and maybe it's flood insurance. And I didn't realize you had so many options, but there are actually a lot of things that a homeowner and even a community might be able to explore when they're finding insurance to deal with flooding, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's the one thing I've really been talking about a lot in the last couple of years is this idea. Yes, the individual, you know, through in flood insurance, we call it mandatory purchase. If a federally backed loan is being put onto a structure in a high risk flood zone as deemed by the, by FEMA, then they will have to purchase flood insurance to, for that building. And that, of course, is something that currently happens in our, you know, our built environment. People are buying homes, requiring insurance, and they go, well, I, might as well buy that. I have to buy this insurance, so I'm going to buy it. But one of the things that we've really talked about in the last couple of years is this idea of the community 
being more involved in that, in, in flood insurance, in that idea of purchase and increased participation. And we call it the bank account of community resiliency, because after a major storm, communities need to think that flood, along with other disaster insurance, really is that immediate resource, financial resource that is available after those events for people to recover. And really, we can tie a community's rebound after a storm to how much insurance, and in my case, I've studied it on the flood insurance side, how much flood insurance is available in a community. And we call it the silos of resiliency because you have grant money, you have some disaster funds, loans, and they all become available after presidentially declared disasters. But no matter what the disaster is for flooding, whether it's presidentially declared or not, if somebody has flood insurance, they're much more likely to be financially resilient than those that don't. So let's say some of these innovations that you're working on, I think of insurance really being the policy set at a state level. Are these innovations that maybe other states can pick up or modify and use in working with their communities? Yeah. So the the great thing about flood insurance is the National Flood Insurance Program, which is the federal government's flood insurance program, has set a standard that flood insurance is a federal or national program. And that's really the great thing about flood insurance is, yes, flood insurance is regulated at the state level, and it still is for for non-federal flood insurance. But really, we have a precedent to to move these insurances across state lines through the National Flood Insurance Program's model that has been in place for 52 years. So, you know, when we look at that model, which is that there's a standard policy form, there's standard rules, there's lending, federal lending regulation around flood, these solutions can easily be applied to different states. You know, of course, insurance is critical for financial protection, but it doesn't actually lower the risk. Are there ways to use insurance to incentivize risk reduction for investments? Yeah, that's and, and that's a really great point. And that is one of the programs I mentioned earlier, this idea of incentivizing somebody to either defend against a flood or build in resilience efforts in order to reduce their premium with a private flood insurance option, which are becoming more popular. But the National Flood Insurance Program is also incentivizing these types of mitigation measures in their new program they're rolling out this year called Risk Rating 2.0. And there's been a, a lot of talk about this change, this coming change to the rating structure. But in that change, FEMA is now saying if you do certain mitigation, like elevate your utilities to a higher floor or elevate your building higher than minimum standards, then there will be a reduction in the cost of your flood insurance. So, yeah, I think as we go down this road, there's been a recognition that while while flood insurance certainly incentivizes somebody to be more financially resilient, there needs to be a direct tie to how it makes somebody structurally or physically more resilient because, you know, for those structures that might flood, you know, two, three times in the last, say, 20 or 30 years, yeah, you might get the money to, to rebuild, but it's certainly a hassle and a pain and a, something that, that you don't want to have to go through if you don't have to. Okay. So in the last, I guess, five, 10 years in your industry, the issue of climate adaptation has really just become this big issue. How are you seeing that? Yeah, you know, it's funny because about two years ago, you know, I really recognized and and that's actually when the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition changed our mission and, and goals. You know, we recognized 
that this idea of flood insurance and flooding could no longer be talked about without including climate and all those associated issues, climate-driven flooding, climate-driven change, couldn't be taught, flooding couldn't be talked about without bringing these other issues into the conversation. And to your point, over the last couple of years, we've seen those tie-ins just accelerate. I mean, we, we look at the Biden administration's recent release of HMGP grant funding built around resilience, and it ties into flood, fire, and all the other catastrophes. So what we've tried to do in both the insurance and activism and nonprofit space is really try to build our mission and build our products and our solutions to be built holistically around this idea of flooding, climate, the change in flooding to the climate. And a perfect example of that is emphasizing the NFIP's sometimes criticized but highly effective program called the Community Rating System, which does tie resilience into insurance. And it allows communities to do certain resilience measures in regards to flood that in turn reduce flood insurance premiums for federally purchased flood insurance. And so, you know, there's only about 1,800 communities in the country that participate in the program. And now, of course, that encompasses 60 to 70% of flood insurance policies. But still, there needs to be an increase in awareness about the activities within CRS, the existence of the program. I think that's just one example of that tie-in. Okay, so I like that term holistic approach to this. And I, I was curious that you homeowners and just even business buyers of insurance, they're looking for stability. They're not looking for giant rate hikes year after year. And yet you being in the business of helping people get insurance that, you know, it seems like there's a new sea level rise projection every two years. And yeah. how, how do you factor that in when you're dealing with people that they want to sort of just bake in, okay, this is how I'm going to pay for insurance? Yeah. And, you know, this is an ongoing discussion in terms of this idea of, you know, what do the future projections look like and how should that affect today's built environment? And the one thing that FEMA has really done in setting the standard here, since again, there's a 52 to 53 year gold standard with the NFIP, the federal program, is to look at how we change our community's view. And this goes all back to my idea of looking at flood insurance as a resilience piece for communities, that bank account of resiliency, is because it actually starts at the community level. If the communities are adopting stricter and better building codes, then not only is it helping the communities be more resilient, but it's helping lower the cost of flood insurance. So there's kind of this circle that needs to be connected between the community's awareness the individual's awareness and the company or insurance placements awareness. You know, the great thing about what we're doing at Joe Flood Insurance is we're creating our own product. And so this is something we're really proud of. And one of the things that we're trying to build in to this product is an incentive program for those that are building higher, building stronger, something similar to what the NFIP has done, but really trying to close that loop between incentivizing those higher standards to trying to build in some type of financial benefit to do that. So you're probably familiar with the concept of managed retreat, right? Yes. Yep. I'm very curious that someone in your industry, especially in your ne- your region of the United States, is that buyouts are becoming a thing. The federal government has pots of money to help people buy out and yep. you know, manage retreat. Is that part of your toolkit now? Is that coming up much? It is. It's coming up a ton. And, and we've networked with a lot of people who are getting into this space. There's a nonprofit called Buy-In that's now you know looking at how they help communities with managed retreat. There's climate 
activism in groups like Higher Ground who are actively looking to get communities involved and how they look at buyouts. So this is something that's really, really moving. And insurance is not ignorant to the fact that these things are happening. We are in in very, and it's going to take years to get momentum behind products that help solve the solution, but they're there. You know, if in, in a great example are products that, yes, they financially protect somebody, but can they also financially enable somebody to, to go somewhere else? You know, and those are discussions that I think the industry is having that we are certainly having in terms of looking at products that may be able to not solve this totally. And and it will be something that is going to absolutely require a private public partnership, but how can we help in that process? Because I think we're, I think the industry as a whole is going to have to move that direction at some point. So let's say someone wants to learn more about what you do. What would you recommend they kind of search for that information? So the great thing about being Joe Flood is there's only one Joe Flood and you can find out more about what I'm doing, including all the different places that I am involved in, some of the national boards I sit on, how we're helping communities, how we're helping insure the country at Joe Flood Rossi. That's Joe Flood, R-O-S-S-I dot com. And it's a one-stop shop to learn more about me and the stuff that I'm involved in. All right. We'll have links to that in the the podcast webpage for this episode. So definitely check that out. And I guess last question here, I ask all my guests, if you could recommend someone to come on this podcast, and I guess with the flood theme, who would it be? Well, you know, there's a lot of people in the flood industry who I look at as people who I admire greatly. And there's not many people that I would recommend more than the current administrator of the program, David Marstad. He has had the insight and at times, you know, has really been able to move the needle when it comes to improving the National Flood Insurance Program. He personally is somebody who I look up to greatly as a leader in this space to move the program forward. He is at the head of the program during some of its most pivotal changes, including the Brick Resilience Grant Program and Risk Rating 2.0. FEMA is not perfect, NFIP is not perfect, but you know, as we move forward, he's really been somebody in the leadership position. Busy guy these days with everything going on over at FEMA and FIMA in the NFIP. But yeah, certainly somebody who can speak to the challenges that FEMA has faced in this space and how they can face them and in, within with flood insurance. Well, Joe Flood, it's been a pleasure chatting with you and thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Doug. This is really fun. I love coming on these types of shows and, and hope to be on again. Hey, Adapters, I am talking with Rob Moore. Rob is the director of the Water and Climate Team at NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Well, thanks for joining this series that we're doing. I know you, Rob, from some previous podcasts that we've done before, but could you give some people some background? What is NRDC and what do you do there? So we're an international environmental organization. Uh, We have offices in the United States as well as India and China. And we do work on just about every environmental issue you could think of, from water quality to endangered species protection to safe drinking water to climate change and increasingly climate adaptation. All right. So the previous episode we did on America DAPS, it was called Flood, Rebuild, Repeat. Great title. And it was taken out of a quote that you did in that episode. So I think very relevant. Your expertise is going to be very helpful what we're doing here. Let's just jump right in. All right. So we often hear people who suffer from floods who didn't realize that they were at risk. Why does this happen? 
Yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that, I think. I think right at the top of that <laughs> list of reasons, however, is we make it exceedingly difficult for people to find out homes flood history, whether you are a renter or a home buyer. In most states, it's exceedingly difficult to get that information. In fact, according to research that NRDC did with the Columbia Law School's Sabin Center for Climate Law, the majority of states in the U.S. do not require a home seller to disclose past flood damages. They don't have to disclose whether they have purchased flood insurance, whether they are legally required to purchase flood insurance or if subsequent owners would be required to purchase flood insurance. We make it really difficult to make sure that what a current property owner knows is passed along to a prospective property owner. Even in states that do have good disclosure laws, and, th and there are some, that information only, only tells you what the current owner personally knows. So if somebody's only owned a house for a year, it may never have flooded, but it may have flooded multiple times under prior owners. But but there's no way for the current owner to know that, right? So there, maybe you'd go and look for other sources of information. Maybe you'd go look at FEMA's flood maps. That's a good way to go. But those are often years, if not decades out of date. And they really don't say anything about future flood risk. You might even think, well, if this property had flood insurance, then FEMA knows if it's flooded before because there would be damage claims. And FEMA wants me to know that information because they want me to buy flood insurance. However, you, you'd be wrong to think that because FEMA will not disclose any information about your own home's flood history until you purchase flood insurance, ironically, which is something that we need to fix. And, and Congress is in position to do that. Okay, that's interesting. So people don't realize that there might be this flooding history, even if you live in that one in a hundred year floodplain, those maps might be out there and leaving aside that they might be out of date, but there's just no trigger for anyone to sort of tell you that you're within that floodplain. I mean, I'm trying to think of the vested interest there. People are selling their home, don't necessarily want that information out there. Who would be a stakeholder that really wants to kind of connect those dots for a home buyer? Well, I think the home buyer themselves is are probably the the biggest stakeholder in that. I think if you have another person who who should want the home buyer to have that information would be their realtor. Depending on where you live, realtors might represent both the buyer and the seller and therefore may they may have a personal conflict or a professional conflict about whose interests are best represented. I think somewhat indicative of the National Association of Realtors' position on disclosure issues. You have certain state chapters that are quite supportive of stronger disclosure laws because they recognize that realtors represent, you know, 50% of realtors on average represent sellers and 50% represent buyers. So given that dynamic, you think it would be really important that that we make sure buyers in particular get all the information that they, they should have to make an informed decision about a home. But the Association of Realtors uh, is, is a little bit searching for the word. They're, they're a bit of two minds, I guess, on this issue. They are in favor of disclosure, but then they have also, in many instances, argued against disclosure requirements. It's never occurred to me the kind of conflict of interest that's going on with the real estate agent and, and of course, the, the associations and everything. You represent the buyers and the sellers. And so in one way, you would want that information. In other ways, you're like, no, let's bury that information. And some, a big group like Zillow, they have dabbled in the notion of looking at sea level rise and including that in some of their selling. But I, I'm assuming they haven't really touched upon flooding more broadly. Well, Zillow has, has done some interesting things. They have done some 
some interesting studies of how sea level rise might affect real estate in the future. You also see a couple of other national websites, one one of which is Realtor.com, which is part of the National Association of Realtors, where they are now putting up information courtesy of the First Street Foundation, uh, which has done a national flood risk assessment of their own. And that data is now available on Realtor.com, right down to the uh, zip code and I believe even the the parcel level. They will give you what First Street calls their flood factor score, which will give you some more information that you can that can use as you see fit. Redfin is another popular real estate website that's also using that same information. So there is more information getting out into home buyers and renters' hands, and that's a great thing. But depending on where you live. You know, your state may or may not require that certain information be disclosed to you. And it's really important for a home buyer or a seller or a renter to know what is and isn't required because you may think, oh, hey, no flood damages were disclosed. So this place is good to go. And then only later do you learn that maybe there were flood damages, but legally, the seller was never required to tell you about them. So don't assume that no news is good news. Flood risk in light of climate change is worse or is going to get worse. And some of these, this means that some places are flooding repeatedly, an area that you know very well. So tell us a bit about the financial aspects of repetitive lost properties. Yeah, as, as the climate warms, we're getting more extreme weather events that dump high amounts of precipitation, or we end up with hurricanes that, that linger and drop more rain. And, and, and flooding is just becoming more pervasive, whether you're in a coastal area or whether you are in an inland area. And because of that, people's homes are increasingly being flooded multiple times. You know, we we usually think of a flood disaster as kind of a once in a lifetime event or maybe twice in a lifetime event, but there's a growing number of properties out there who flood, you know, every two to three years sometimes. And, you know, just imagine what it must be like living in a home that floods every two to three years. Uh, It would be a nightmare, frankly, to live every time it rains with the fear that your home is going to flood, to have lost so much in past floods, whether it was family heirlooms or personal property or photo albums or just just the the whole process of having to clean up and rebuild parts of your home over and over and over again. It's a trap that nobody wants to be caught in. So some places, the risk is just getting really high. Should people be living in these areas? Well, it's not my place to to give a, a black or white answer to that question, I don't think. It can come down to a decision of the individual themselves. That's often how relocation, voluntary relocations happen here in the United States is is a homeowner or or a group of homeowners in a neighborhood may just be fed up with the fact that their homes flood over and over and they go to their city and they say, Hey, you've, you've got to help us get out of here and we've got to figure out a way to help us move somewhere safer. And then perhaps the city applies for funding from either the state government or often from FEMA. And FEMA has programs that are designed to help provide exactly that type of assistance. Those are often a good avenue for people to, to pursue. One of the problems with that is that it can be a painfully long process and it's, 
it, it's, it can sometimes feel like the homeowners in purgatory waiting to find out if their home is going to be bought or not, when that is going to happen. And when are they finally going to be free of this property? And and also, always in the back of their head is, is my home going to flood yet again before this buyout ever materializes? And that, and that sadly, that does happen. NRDC tracks legislation pretty closely. So what are some of the things that are, you know, the federal government that I know you guys are pushing for, or even Congress are, are, are looking at that will help with these issues? Is anything in the pipeline? Oh, you know, there's good news to report there, Doug. Um, (laughs) I'm so happy you asked that question. You know, at at the state level, there's actually states that are looking at updating their disclosure laws. Uh, New York State had a bill pass in the state Senate this past year and almost got through the state assembly that would have updated uh, New York's disclosure laws to better reflect flood risks and past flood damages, which sorely needs to happen in that state. Massachusetts is another state where legislation has been introduced to achieve the same result. And you see states like Texas, uh, who went from having a fairly mediocre flood disclosure law to having one of the best in the nation in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. You know, the, the state of Texas realized that they needed to level the playing field for people who were, were looking at buying or renting a new home. So there's good news uh, on that front. In Congress, there's a lot of things happening right now. First and foremost, uh, in people's minds might be some of the budgetary items that are happening, both through reconciliation and what's known as the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed the Senate last month. There's a lot of money in there for, for various aspects of climate resilience, including better protections for people who are at risk of flooding and sea level rise. And on the policy front, there are a number of things underway as well. Perhaps the biggest one uh, continues to be uh, the need for reforms to the National Flood Insurance Program. And there's uh, a lot of ideas that are getting discussed there that we're very hopeful will result in legislation passing perhaps early in 2022. And that legislation uh, could possibly do a, a whole bunch of good things. Uh, there is debate about requiring a national flood disclosure law, something that NRDC feels very strongly about the need for. There's also proposals for making it easier for people to get assistance to relocate with those funds being provided directly by the National Flood Insurance Program, which could help speed these transactions along and take a lot of the uncertainty out of these types of decisions for for people who are faced with repeated flooding. And then um, there's a number of proposals out there for also making flood insurance more affordable. How do you make sure that people who are lower income individuals even have the financial ability to purchase flood insurance. That's a huge issue. There was a study done actually by Redfin, the real estate website that found that there's a high correlation in many, many major metropolitan areas between past lending practices, particularly discriminatory lending practices like redlining and people of color living in very high risk areas. It's disproportionately people of color are more likely to live in areas that are prone to flooding. And and because they all also are often lower income, they don't have the financial ability to purchase flood insurance. And FEMA currently does not have the ability to to give a discount on coverage based on somebody's financial status. So there's a lot of interest in Congress uh, from Republicans and Democrats, I think, in, in finally rectifying that problem. And FEMA itself has taken some strides lately to get the program on a more solid footing for how it prices insurance policies 
that are a little bit more accurate as far as the price reflecting people's actual risks. So those are all really encouraging developments. Okay, fantastic. All right, Rob, appreciate you coming on and joining the podcast. Thanks for what you're doing. Thank you, Doug. Always a pleasure. I love the show and uh, I'm an avid listener. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Joining me is Josh Lippard. Josh is the floodplain manager for the city of Philadelphia. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. All right. So what are your responsibilities beyond the obvious in your title as a floodplain manager for the city? Yes, as the first ever dedicated floodplain manager for the city of Philadelphia, I'm responsible for all things floodplain related. That includes regulations, preparedness, mitigation, mapping, public information, and even facets of flood warning. You've just sort of explained how what the city's doing, but maybe we could expand on that. So how's the city of Philadelphia being proactive about flood risk? And I guess if you were the first hire for this particular position, that's being proactive, but what are some of the other things? Yeah, we're actually fairly progressive and proactive in floodplain management, being that in 2015, the city developed a internal flood risk management task force, which was a unique collaborative effort at the time, being that it brought together about eight different internal city departments to think proactively about floodplain management in respect to all of the disasters that were happening in some of our peer cities like Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Harvey, and even Katrina in New Orleans. This task force was designed at a time when Philadelphia hadn't experienced a big event, like some of those peer cities. So it was really to be progressive, proactive, and tackle floodplain management in a holistic and coordinated way. Are you a longtime Philadelphia resident, or did you come outside the city and start doing this work? Yeah, I'm actually from Pittsburgh, PA, so the, the littler of the two big cities in Pennsylvania. And I was formerly the floodplain manager in Pittsburgh as well. Let's talk about maybe some of the down into the you know ground level approaches in Philadelphia. What are some of the green approaches? And I guess you, you're probably seeing it, nature-based solutions to flood management. What's Philadelphia doing in that area? Yeah, so through our water department, we have an amazing green infrastructure program. It's about 10 years old at this point, and it's really tackling both water quality and water quantity aspects to meet both the EPA's consent decree for combined sewers, but also to meet some of the quantity issues that we're having, specifically looking to tackle some of our urban or sometimes it's referred to as infrastructure flooding that occurs outside of the traditional floodplains in urban areas like Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, we really suffer from kind of three buckets of flooding or three types of flooding, we like to call it. There's the traditional FEMA floodplains, and that in Philadelphia is both coastal and riverine floodplains. So we have the Schuylkill River, which is known for its rowing and some of its recreational activities. We have many creeks and streams throughout the the city that suffers from riverine flooding. So that's the flooding that occurs over bank into the areas adjacent to the creeks and streams. But also we have flooding along the Delaware River, which, although a river in tidal, is actually coastally influenced. Every day it experiences tidal fluctuations up to seven feet, but also could suffer from a coastal storm events, such as a hurricane or a tropical storm, which could cause wave action and storm surge along the entirety of our Delaware River. Our second type of flooding that affects Philadelphia is called infrastructure flooding, or sometimes referred to as urban flooding. This is flooding that happens outside of traditional floodplains, being creeks, rivers, and streams. In areas of the city that were historically a creek or stream, that had been piped in the early 1900s into sewer systems. These areas are areas where streets can become river-like events, but also basements 
or back up with stormwater as well as even sewage water when the sewer meets its capacity during large storm events. And then finally, our last type of flooding is the future effects of climate change, that being higher tides as well as the threat of sea level rise and permanent inundation, which studies have shown will have a a large impact on Philadelphia by the end of the century. And all of this is compounded by some of the severe storm events we're seeing. Our neighboring municipality saw 10 inches of rain um, a few months ago here in Philadelphia. And we're seeing like events here in the city as well. So you're coming from Pittsburgh, just not too far away. What what are the differences? These are major urban areas and there's not as much green space as, you know, more rural areas. Are there contrasts from the different cities? Are there more riparian areas in Pittsburgh or, or in Philadelphia? How does that work as, as the floodplain coming from two very different cities? Yeah, so the biggest contrast is the coastal influence. So the Delaware River being coastal and tidal is the the major difference in terms of flood impacts to either city. Pittsburgh does not suffer from any sort of coastally impacted waterways. And then the other big difference is the threat of sea level rise. Philadelphia has what what the data shows, severe threat of sea level rise, inundating large swaths of the city, such as parts of the International Airport, as well as the Navy Yard in areas along the Delaware River. Whereas Pittsburgh being more Western and even an Appalachian city will not suffer from the effects of sea level rise, but will suffer from more severe storms that are dumping heavier amounts of rain on localized areas of the city, which also occurs here in Philadelphia. So when you're talking about these risks, sea level rise, flooding, are you guys using in Philadelphia new ways to actually map these risks? Yeah, mapping and data is one of the key components and key facets of any holistic floodplain management program. It's really knowing your data, agreeing on data, as well as the science behind flood risk, and then mapping those risks so that people know their flood risk. My number one thing that I tell residents is always know your flood risk. Look it up on FEMA's website, look it up on products like Flood Factor, which is a newer product that tries to pull together urban, coastal, and riverine flood risk all into one product. It's even been adopted by some of the Realtor apps that are out there today. But knowing your flood risk is vitally important. And it's important for cities to have processes set up where they are gaining new data sets and developing new maps well beyond those that maybe FEMA produces for a local city or municipality. Part of what you do is educate your local residents about the risk of flooding. There's just the immediate life risk to your life around some of these events. What are you guys doing within the city agencies and maybe some county staffers to educate residents about the financial impact of all this flooding? Yes, the financial impact is is huge. And the biggest thing that we promote after knowing your risk is flood insurance. Flood insurance is one of the few ways that you can build back after a flood event, it might not build you back whole, but it can build you back and get you back into your home or into a new home after a major flood event. Without flood insurance and without a disaster declaration, there is no funding typically available to help residents reclaim their lives in their homes or in other homes. We had a, a major flood event in 2020. It was the effects of Hurricane Isaias. We had over 600 residents impacted here in Philadelphia, and there was no federal disaster declaration, meaning only the the small few that had flood insurance were able to build back and get back into their homes, whereas we still have residents a year later that still cannot occupy their homes because they can't afford to rebuild their hot water tank or their furnace system that was impacted by that flood event. 
there was no funding available to really be distributed to these residents that were impacted. Okay. So you got very different flooding risks. You talked about sea level rise, but then you can have rain events. So what flood risk reduction measures are most helpful in Philadelphia? So the most helpful are what we call non-structural. So knowing your flood risks, procuring flood insurance, and doing those small things within your own home. So developing a preparedness plan when a flood is forecasted, moving your vehicle from your driveway out front so it doesn't get damaged. Because not only can you have damage to your property in your home and your, your home yourself, you can also lose your mobility, which is another financial stressor. Things like moving your vehicle, moving some of your, your valuables from the lower levels to upper floors. So just having that emergency plan for you and your family is vitally important. The second thing is when you are impacted by a flood event, not just building back the way it was before, but building back better. So making sure that you're spending that that extra money to maybe elevate your hot water tank or elevate your furnace or move some of your critical documents that were in your lower levels up to those upper floors so that you aren't as impacted financially, emotionally, and physically by flooding. How does Philadelphia balance the pressure for more development with growing flood risks? And that is a great question. That is one of the five main challenges in floodplain management development pressures. And that is can be political, it can be economic. There's a lot of pressure for development. And honestly, we have adopted floodplain regulations. So people are building to higher standards. So they're more resilient structures. But we are issuing hundreds, if not thousands of permits in any given year for new development and flood plans when we have thousands of existing structures that are impacted by floods. The only thing that we can do is kind of plan and balance for those development pressures by doing so, making sure that you're not just adopting the minimum federal flood regulations, but adopting ones that make sense in your city or your community. So in Philadelphia, we've identified typologies of flooding and we've identified different types of impacts of flooding. And we've tried to adopt codes and regulations that create more resiliency for those communities that are being built or being built back after flood events. Okay, something more recent is Hurricane Henry just skirted by in the Atlantic. How did the the city, well, Philadelphia in this situation, how did you prepare? Were you guys, I know it was really targeting New England, but you did you guys do anything different in regards to like planning for maybe potential flooding? Yeah, any event that's coming up, the Atlantic Ocean on the East Coast, we always are prepared. We always are sending out flood warnings, flood alerts prior to these events because we are still going to be impacted by rain. Even if we're on the edge of that that hurricane or that tropical storm, it's likely that some rain bands will be hitting Philadelphia because those are extremely intense and severe and impact parts of our city. Flood warnings, flood alerts. We also send out crews to maintain some of the, the sewer inlets along our our streets that we know that are flooded frequently, we clean those out so our systems can manage as much of the water as possible. So if people want to learn more about what Philadelphia is doing to manage flooding, are there particular resources? Is there a website? Do you have it organized in ways maybe even other cities can learn from what you guys are doing? We recently launched a flood program website on philadelphia.gov that gets into all of the key components of floodplain management in Philadelphia and gets down to specific types of flooding that impact specific neighborhoods. We have three neighborhoods in Philadelphia that are our most frequent flooded areas in the city, and they each suffer from different types of flooding. So communicating the type of flooding that impacts the community can then 
result in how you respond, recover, and even prepare for that type of flooding. So we've developed some unique two-page documents that at a high level can start to build that knowledge and understanding of flooding, as well as the small steps you can do. We hope to build from there more technical guides as we build that education with our residents, how they can dive even deeper into resilient aspects of their own properties, of their communities, to build flood resiliency holistically in their neighborhoods. If you could recommend one person to come on the podcast to talk about these issues, who would you recommend? I work very closely with the the NFIP program manager for the the state of Pennsylvania, Bill Bradfield. I would recommend Bill. He has purview over the entire Commonwealth or the entire state of Pennsylvania. We have many different typologies in Pennsylvania, many different flood types. We have lake flooding up in Lake Erie. We have varying degrees of flooding and varying degrees of capacity throughout the state of Pennsylvania, which can create some uniqueness in how floodplain management occurs at varying levels of government. Okay, Josh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You guys are doing some really innovative work there in Philadelphia, and thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Doug. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Joining me is Samantha Medlock. Samantha is the Senior Counsel for the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis in the U.S. Congress. Hi, Samantha. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you very much, Doug. What a treat to be hosting you on the podcast. You're doing great work there, and we're going to learn about some of these things related to the flooding and risk that we're doing as part of this series. But for my listeners, could you give a little bit of background? What is this committee? What do you guys do? Sure. So the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis was created in the 116th Congress to make recommendations for ways that Congress can be acting to confront the climate crisis across its full dimensions of reducing carbon emissions and other greenhouse gases, helping the nation adapt and prepare for the impacts of the climate crisis, and importantly, addressing the inequity associated with climate threats. So we made those recommendations in June of 2020 and have been focused on implementation of those recommendations during the 117th Congress. Okay, so the committee actually hasn't been around that long. So what were you doing before you joined this committee? Sure. Well, right before joining the team, I was in the deep end of the financial services sector with a large insurance broker working on many of the same issues, finding ways for private sector and public sector entities to be more resilient through the kinds of capabilities of insurance and reinsurance. But I really recognized an opportunity to help the Congress and so joined that effort about two years ago and it's been a blast. All right. So you have worked in the executive branch, now the legislative branch, and for a large global insurance broker. How has that shaped your view of the role of disaster insurance and how the public and private sectors can work together to tackle increasing climate risk? Yeah. So I made really conscious decisions following service in the White House for President Obama to find ways to look at the capabilities of private insurance and reinsurance, as well as the capacities and capabilities of public programs, and find ways to bring the best of these worlds together. I think that there are great innovations that we've seen work across public-private partnerships And we already see the ways that insurance and reinsurance can be stabilizing public portfolios 
like the National Flood Insurance Program and the ways that that program has taken advantage of reinsurance and catastrophe bond solutions. I think we also can look at examples outside the United States. For example, we see these trigger-based policies like parametric insurance performing in really innovative and beneficial ways in areas of Africa to protect against drought, in areas of the Caribbean and Latin America to protect against other forms of extreme weather, including hurricanes, as well as earthquakes. And so I think there's a great opportunity now to look at the ways that U.S. communities and federal programs can be benefiting from these innovative solutions that have a proven track record of success outside the United States. So I've mentioned trigger-based policies. I think parametric insurance and catastrophe bonds are particularly interesting. They can issue payment very quickly, but they also can provide actionable information about risks like extreme weather, even if you never have to file a claim, even if you never have to activate the policy because of the analyses that go into these insurance solutions. As we're seeing with the weather around us, hurricanes, wildfire, and people are really sort of tying the climate change signal on these disasters. Is it going to be hard for these companies that offer insurance to keep offering it? I mean, you can raise prices, but we're getting to a a situation where it just might not be profitable at all. What's been your experience in that? Right. Well, I mean, at at the end of the day, Private insurance is not philanthropy, and these companies are bound by regulation that requires them to stay solvent. And I think that we are facing real challenges in markets that could signal impending market failure, where some of these hazards are becoming more and more difficult to to transfer through private insurance. I, I think we're all keeping a close eye on what's happening in the arid west and parts of California around wildfire threats. This is why it is so important to be investing in in hazard mitigation and finding ways to make sure that risks are better identified and that investments are made on the ground to mitigate those hazards, whether it's wildfire or flood or other extreme conditions. So in regards to these insurance companies and their ability to keep doing what they're doing in the face of climate change, let's, I guess, dig into flooding and what can the federal government do to help make sure people have financial resilience to escalating flood events? Right. So probably the most effective way to help folks deal with their flood risk is to actually reduce it. So this is where we see, for example, action through the Biden administration and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, to do as much pre-disaster mitigation investment as, as possible. And, and we're, we're really encouraged to see actions from the administration also to make sure that those investments are going to be driving resilient outcomes. For example, by implementing through the hazard mitigation assistance programs standards that will ensure that those pre-disaster mitigation investments and post-disaster recovery investments 
are going to be more resilient to flooding. We also, I think, are looking both through administration action and through action here on Capitol Hill to do greater pre-disaster mitigation investment through FEMA's BRIC program, so building resilient infrastructure and communities. This is the the kind of investment that helps buy down risk by getting out ahead of the disaster and helping to strengthen infrastructure and housing and important public buildings before disaster strikes when it pays really good dividends. But even after a disaster, we need to be making sure that disaster recovery takes into account what those disasters have to teach us so that we are rebuilding to stronger standards, using good building codes and standards, and helping to make sure that those funds are available as quickly as possible after disaster strikes. The role of insurance here is also going to be very important. So we see opportunities through the National Flood Insurance Program and legislative initiatives to strengthen that program and make sure that there are measures in place to address the real affordability challenges that can be making it tougher for folks to access the insurance that they need. This is where I think there's a good bipartisan interest and support for strengthening the affordability for the National Flood Insurance Program and being able to differentiate between those for whom paying the actuarially based premiums may be undesired or unpopular, and I put myself in that category, from those for whom it it poses real financial hardship. There's really good interest, I think, in making sure that folks who need insurance and want to be insured against flood threat can afford the insurance that they need. Cost should not be a barrier. And so this is where I think opportunities through pilot programs on affordability and through means-tested assistance programs to help make flood insurance more affordable for those who need it are going to make a really big difference. I also want to note the work that FEMA has been doing on a program called Risk Rating 2.0 to strengthen the equity of the way that those flood insurance policies are rated. We know right now that there are folks that are paying uh, more than than they would under the risk rating equity reforms that FEMA is pursuing, but there are also going to be folks who could end up paying more. And in some cases, it could be significantly more. But this is all toward making the program more equitable and making those premiums better reflect the actual risk on the ground. Specifically with FEMA, are they doing more to address inequities in recovery? They are. I'm encouraged to see FEMA taking some specific action to address the persistent disproportionate impacts of disasters on black and brown communities, on low-income households. Federal policies and practices need to reflect the barriers to resilience that come from systemic racist policies like around land use and rights. So in response to President Biden's executive orders on racial equity and the climate crisis, agencies across the federal government are examining their policies and practices to identify opportunities to reform and to take action on those opportunities. So specifically on FEMA, they sought 
public comment to inform their efforts and received more than 300 responses with advice on ways to modify their programs to better address climate change and underserved communities and populations. They've also stood up an equity enterprise steering group to improve coordination, and they've strengthened the deployment of training on civil rights law and ways to incorporate equity into tactical decision-making, like where to place disaster recovery um, centers. They are also seeking more input from stakeholders into their 2022 through 2026 strategic plan, but more needs to be done. We need to adjust, for example, the ways that projects are evaluated to calculate costs and benefits beyond property values And we as a federal government need to do more to meet folks where they are living at risk and to meet disaster survivors where they are by removing barriers to disaster aid. So can you tell us about preferential tax treatment for disaster savings accounts? Sure. That's an area of great and really promising bipartisan interest. We've seen Chairman DeFazio and other representatives come together to introduce the Disaster Savings and Resilient Construction Act, which is bipartisan legislation to provide tax credits for homes as well as businesses to help their owners rebuild after disasters. And these are the kinds of really transformational investments that can help strengthen communities against the kinds of disasters that we know are anticipated to get worse under climate change. We also, I think, are really encouraged to see the the kinds of funding innovations available through revolving loan programs and other disaster aid legislation that can provide homeowners and employers and businesses with greater investment and access to capital. We also, I think, can be looking to the ways that those types of federal loans can be secured by insurance that protects taxpayer investment. But it also, again, brings a lot of the benefits that insurance analytics can bring in understanding risk associated with those loans. Okay. So if my listeners want to learn more about what this committee is doing, you have these hearings and you guys are compiling a lot of important information and making these recommendations. What, how would you recommend them to kind of to understand a bit more what you guys do? Sure. The, the best resource is our website at climatecrisis.house.gov. Of course, we are also on Twitter at Climate Crisis, and we have listservs that folks can find on our website and sign up for. We post our hearings as well as briefings. So the most recent briefing with the IPCC Climate Report authors is posted to our website and folks can tune into that. They can also track the progress that our committee has been making in implementing the more than 700 recommendations that we made, the, the progress that we've made in terms of those recommendations that have been passed by the House, as well as more than 100 of those recommendations that have been signed into law. We are very encouraged by the progress that we're making, but we know we've got so much more to do. And engaged public is a really important part of this. So that's a great place for folks to find out more information and engage with us. 
Samantha, this has been a pleasure. Really appreciate what you're doing there on the committee. Incredibly important work. And thanks for making the time to come on the podcast. Thank you, Doug. It's been a privilege. It's always such a great opportunity to get to work with you. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you this afternoon. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Carolyn Kuski, Joe Rossi, Rob Moore, Josh Lippert, and Samantha Medlock for joining the show. As you can see, a lot of very smart people are thinking about climate change and flooding. Policy hasn't caught up to the changes that are occurring and likely to occur. But as you heard, there are some innovative ways to help people achieve financial resilience in this new climate era. And Congress is also thinking long and hard about this issue. We hear stories about how houses that get rebuilt over and over again in floodplains. Well, we may be seeing some positive changes on this front in the not-too-distant future. This was the second and the final episode in this two-part series. Definitely check out the first episode. The link to that first episode is in my show notes. I would like to thank Carolyn at the Wharton Risk Center for sponsoring this episode. And thanks to Zoe Linder Bapti, the Communication and Engagement Coordinator at the Risk Center. And thanks again for the generous support from the Delaware Valley Regional Planning Commission through the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's Coastal Zone Management Program for funding the grant that led to this series. All right, upcoming episodes, Dr. Jesse Keenan of Tulane University joins the pod again to take us through all the federal adaptation action plans that were recently released. We'll see what departments and agencies are doing well on the adaptation front. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, just like this series, think about sponsoring a whole episode on America Adapts. Sponsoring podcasts allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. So these sponsored episodes usually have quite a few experts in them, and often I go on location to do these interviews. Obviously, I took a break during the COVID era, but I'm looking to restart some of that travel. I've done episodes with World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard, University of Florida, and NRDC. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. Most projects have a communications budget written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentations that many groups work into their communication strategies. So think about it. And if you're interested in having me speak at public or corporate events, please reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and you will enjoy it. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcasts and my own experiences in adaptation. So definitely look me up at americadapts.org. On that note, I keep telling people this the last four years. I love hearing from you. Reach out. My email is americadapts at gmail.com. Just say hi. Or tell me what you do. If you're in the space or thinking of getting into the space, let me know who you are. It's the best way for me to figure out who's listening to the podcast. And it's been fabulous when I hear from you guys. You guys are doing some of the coolest work out there. And it's the highlight of my week. Again, I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.